Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing our series on uh, the vision of Central West End Church. Our vision is to see a city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally. That means that God is not just uh, interested in saving our souls. His vision is to save the whole world. So yes, the gospel does begin with spiritual renewal, but it doesn't end there. In other words, one of the ways that you know you're really experiencing true spiritual renewal is you discover a growing concern for renewal in every other part of the world. Now, this week, we're looking at social renewal, and specifically, we're going to be talking about justice, which in our culture is a huge topic. Uh, in fact, over the last decade or so, we've seen a, a, a growing and increasingly growing passion and moral fervor around areas of justice, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Me Too or countless of other, uh, other movements. Um, in, in our culture, we live in the midst of a profoundly justice-oriented culture. Now, this is a controversial topic. There are a number of Christians who would say, well, look— um, 
the gospel is all about spiritual renewal. The gospel is primarily concerned with, with spiritual matters and that focusing on justice distracts us from these spiritual matters. It distracts us from things like personal conversion and salvation in Christ. And therefore, we, we should question this focus on justice. But then there are another group of people, uh, another group of Christians that would say that uh, in order for the church to be more relevant in this progressive age, that we need to progress along with the culture, and therefore we should actually get rid of these traditional doctrines. So people would say, look, Jesus was all about justice. All of this stuff about um, substitutionary atonement or redemption, these are dry, dusty, old doctrines. We should put those in the dust heap and move on from those because Jesus never said anything about that in the first place anyway. All of that stuff is a later invention of the church. All of that stuff was um, added to the Gospels years and years later, but was never a part of Jesus' original teachings. But then there are another group of people, they're not identifying as Christians, that may be even some of you. Uh, these would be people who would say that bringing the Bible or God or Jesus into this conversation about justice at all is just ridiculous. Because religious people have been some of the worst perpetrators of injustice in the history of the world. So why on earth would we listen to what the Bible has to say about this? Why indeed? What does the Bible, and especially what does Christianity have to say about the topic of justice? Uh, this morning, we're going to actually listen to what Jesus himself has to show us about it. In fact, we're going to hear this one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told. It's called the Good Samaritan. And in this parable, we're going to see Jesus show us three things. He's showing us the call to justice. He's showing us the nature of justice. And lastly, Jesus is showing us the real power for justice. Okay? The call the nature and the real power for justice. So first, Jesus shows us the call for justice. Now this parable that Jesus told comes as a response to a question. And you can see the question in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this lawyer was an expert in the law that God gave to Moses instructing his people how to live. And you can see that this lawyer does not think that Jesus takes the law very seriously at all because he says he wanted to put Jesus to the test. In other words, Jesus was always welcoming sinners. He was so gracious and hospitable to all kinds of people that the lawyer expects that Jesus is going to say, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. God loves anybody regardless of how they live, at which point the lawyer is going to say, gotcha. But instead of saying that, Jesus says, oh, you want to talk about the law? Okay, well, tell me this. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And at which point the lawyer gives a very good summary of the law, of the Jewish law. He says, well, the law says like this, that you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus hears him say that, he says, very good, you got it. Now you just go and live like that. Wonderful job. Now, here's what's going on. The lawyer is operating from a moralistic worldview. Moralism says that if you live a good life, if you're a good person, then God will love you and welcome you into his kingdom. Um, and Jesus is basically saying, that's right. Now, you just go ahead and live like that. It's Actually, it's brilliant because Jesus is forcing the lawyer to um, face the implications of his moralistic worldview. 
Basically, Jesus is saying, you know, this is an impossible standard. You can't possibly live up to a life like this. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying basically to the lawyer, look, you think I don't take the law very seriously. My friend, I take it far more seriously than you do. If you really can live up to the law, if you really can do everything the law requires of you, great. But let's at least understand what the law really requires. What does the law require? Well, first it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And if you really do love God like that, then you will love your neighbor. Now, love your neighbor. Does, does that sound familiar to anyone? That is one of the most famous ethical commands in the whole Bible. It actually comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. Now, the interesting thing about that verse is that it comes right in the middle of a whole section that is all about justice. Now, justice in the ancient world was a very common topic. Lots of people talked about justice, but the biblical call to justice was radically unique because Leviticus 19 is all about caring for the poor, the weak, the oppressed, and the vulnerable. Now, in our culture, we would say, well, of course that's what justice means. Yes, justice is for everybody, but it is especially for the poor and the oppressed. We just take that for granted. But historically speaking, the only reason caring for the poor and the oppressed is in our culture is because it comes to us from the Bible. And I know many people in our secular world might scoff at that idea, but historically speaking, the evidence is overwhelming for this. For instance, I was listening recently to an interview with a woman named Teresa Morgan. Teresa Morgan is a professor of Greco-Roman history at Oxford University. So you could say she's something of an expert in this. She wrote a book called Public Morality in the Early Roman Empire. So what was morality like in the ancient world? Well, Teresa Morgan describes it as an ethic of survival. She says that this was a world of vast economic and social inequity and of enormous economic insecurity. Basically, there were no social safety nets. Uh, there was no welfare system. If you lost your livelihood, if you lost your land, then you ended up on the streets. So that sheer survival from day to day would have dominated the thinking of everybody all of the time in that world. So in that world, in the ancient world, morality meant that you protect your family, you protect your tribe. In fact, in that world, it was actually praiseworthy to harm your enemy because you're protecting your own. There was no welfare system. There was no caring for the poor. In order to care for the poor, you would have had to take food out of the mouth of your family in order to give it to somebody else. And in that world, you just didn't do that. But, Teresa Morgan says, when you read the New Testament, when you look at the life of the early church, you see a community of people at the bottom of the social ladder, who regularly risked their lives in order to care for the poor and the oppressed, not just in the church, but throughout all of society. Friends, this is where our modern social ethic comes from. This is where the civil rights movement comes from. This is where Black Lives Matter comes from. This is where Me Too comes from. The call to care for the poor, the weak, the oppressed, and the vulnerable is a profoundly biblical social ethic. When Jesus says, 
do this and you will live, what he's doing is he's not just affirming this call to justice, he's actually raising the ante. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the call to justice. Jesus also shows us the nature of justice. It's at this point in the conversation that, you know, the lawyer's starting to sweat a little bit because he realizes what Jesus is doing. He knows that Jesus is basically saying, look, have you ever really thought about the kind of life that God requires of you? You know, it's easy to say, oh, love God, love your neighbor, but, but have you ever really looked, when you look at the kind of life God requires from you, do you really love God with every ounce of your uh, heart, soul, and strength and mind? And do you really constantly pour yourself out in sacrificial love for your neighbor? Because if you do, then great. Um, you will enter the kingdom of God, but the question is, are you able to do it? Jesus is trying to help this lawyer to see that it is impossible for him really to live this kind of life. And you could see that's exactly what the lawyer understands. He knows this is what Jesus is doing because the next thing it says is that he was desiring to justify himself. In other words, he still wants to hang on to his moralistic worldview. So what does he do? Well, he tightens his lawyer hat down a little bit, and, and he goes into lawyer mode. Now listen, um, lawyers serve a, a very noble and necessary purpose in society, but you understand that lawyers are paid to be very particular about words and definitions, and that's exactly what this lawyer is doing. He's getting particular. He wants to know, okay, Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? He's thinking that if we can just narrow this definition down to a very small group of people, then I still have a shot at performing my, my way into the love of God. Basically, the lawyer's asking, hey, Jesus, what are the minimum entrance requirements for the kingdom of God? What, what's the bare minimum that I have to do? And in response, Jesus tells him this story about a man who was traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho who was attacked by robbers, stripped naked, and left uh, half dead in the middle of the road. Now, in fact, this was a very true-to-life scenario because this was a real road in that age, and it was notorious for being incredibly dangerous. Being attacked by robbers was a very real threat on this road. Now, the first people who stop by are a priest and a Levite, uh, a Levite is like an assistant to the priest. These would have been considered very um, religiously uh, prominent, very morally upstanding citizens in their uh, society. They also would have been expected to give aid to the person who was lying wounded in the road. But neither of them does. Instead, along comes a Samaritan, and the Samaritan is the one who actually gives aid to the man beaten in the road. Now, many of you may be aware that in those days, uh, Jews and Samaritans actually hated each other. Uh, Jewish people considered Samaritans to be uh, religious heretics. They also considered them to be racially impure outsiders. But Jesus, very purposefully, is making this Samaritan the hero of the story. To put this in modern terms, it'd be kind of like this. If you lean right, it, it's kind of like Jesus is saying, imagine that a democratic socialist came by and that was the one who stopped to give aid. Or, or if you lean uh, left, it's like Jesus is saying, imagine that a guy in a MAGA hat came by and he was the one who stopped to give aid. Jesus is saying, whatever group you hate the most, I want you to imagine that they're the ones who saw the man lying in the road, had compassion, and stopped to give aid. Jesus is, is 
dismantling our innate prejudice against one another in this parable. But even more than that, what did it cost this Samaritan man to show this kind of neighbor love to the man lying in the road? Well, first, it cost him time. I don't, I don't know about you, but you know, I'll just be honest. I oftentimes struggle with um, busyness and feeling rushed in my life. Uh, it would have cost the Samaritan man a lot of time to care for the man beaten in the road. Secondly, it would have cost him a lot of effort. You had to administer first aid. You had to load him onto your donkey and then lead him into the village and then put him up at the end. There would have been a, a tremendous amount of effort involved in this. Uh, thirdly, uh, this would have been extremely expensive financially. Two denarii uh, is equivalent to two days' wages in the ancient world. On top of that, uh, he tells the innkeeper, if there's any other costs, then I will reimburse you personally. This was a tremendous financial expense for the Samaritan man. But fourthly, uh, not only was there an involvement of time and effort and finances, it put the Samaritan in physical danger to do this. I mean, because understand, this is a dangerous road they're on. To stop and give aid means that the robbers still could have been standing by somewhere and hiding, you know? Oh, look, <laughs> fresh meat. Uh, and on top of that, when the Samaritan brought the wounded man to the village, he's unconscious, he can't tell anybody what happens. When the Samaritan brings the wounded man into the village, because he's a Samaritan, it would have been very natural and very possible that the villagers would have just assumed that the Samaritan was the one who robbed the man and then attacked the Samaritan as a consequence of that. It would have cost this Samaritan incredibly to care for this person. Jesus is saying that loving your neighbor means caring for their physical, material, and economic well-being, and doing so not just when you, you can do it without feeling the pinch. In other words, Jesus is saying that, that loving your neighbor means uh, costly love. It should cost you. And it's not just giving when you have extra. It's not just giving out of your leftovers. It means giving even when it might mean that you yourself do without in order to care for someone else. But listen, it's not just what the Samaritan did here that's so amazing. It's who he did it to. Because remember the lawyer's question. The lawyer wanted to know exactly who is my neighbor. You know, Jesus is a brilliant storyteller. And one of the most brilliant parts of the story is this. Um, in that day and age, in that part of the world at that time, that was a very multi-ethnic culture. And there were two ways, basically, of discovering uh, where somebody was from. One way was how they dressed, and another way was how they spoke. So if you saw somebody and, and, and you wanted to know where they were from or who they were, you could tell by the way they dressed or the way they spoke. So when um, you wanted to know somebody, you say, how are they dressed? How are they speaking? This is a way of knowing where they're from. In other words, you find out, do they belong to my religious group? Do they belong to my racial group? Do they belong to my social group? The lawyer's thinking, um, unless they belong to one of these groups, then they're not actually my neighbor. But here's what's so brilliant about this part of the story. Remember, who is this beaten man? What happened to him? He's naked and he's unconscious. That means he's not dressed and he can't speak. That means it's impossible to find out where he's from. It's impossible to find out whether he belongs to one of your groups. The lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? The lawyer wanted to know, I, he, he was saying, I need to know who this person is 
before I will help? Jesus is saying that's the wrong question. The real question is, you don't need to know. The only thing you need to know is that this person is in need. Jesus was basically presenting this person as... um, as a, as a basic human being, he was presenting this person in their core humanity and making it impossible to find out what religious or racial or social group they belong to. It was a way of presenting the man in his core humanity. Basically, Jesus was saying, this is a human being. He's created in the image of God. This is your brother. If he's in need, you therefore must help him. Friends, Jesus is saying that justice is sacrificially caring for the physical, material, and economic well-being of every human being, of every human being. And, you know, we think in our culture that if you do that, that's charity and that it's optional. You know, we think, oh, if you care for people like that, if you give out of your expenses to care for people like that, it's very noble, very magnanimous, very virtuous, but it's, it's also optional. That's charity. Jesus is saying it's not optional. It's mandatory. And if you fail to do it, it's actually injustice. You're failing to obey the command to love your neighbor. Now, in our world, what does that look like? Who are the oppressed? Who are the marginalized in our society? Well, the same is throughout society. We might add a couple more groups, but it's certainly the poor, the immigrant. We could also add the LGBT community, uh, people of color or minorities in our culture. You know, we just commemorated yesterday the 52nd anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. But you know, even now, 52 years later, that racial injustice is still a huge issue in our culture, and not just for African Americans, but for all people of color. Most recently, there has been a a surge of racism against Asian Americans because of the coronavirus. Jesus is saying that my people must take these things seriously. So friends, you know, Here at this church, when we started this church four years ago, from day one, we wanted to commit ourselves to taking these things seriously. When we say that our vision is to see a city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally, this is the social component. So I mentioned a little bit ago that we just established a coronavirus fund in order to help those who have been hardest hit by the economic economic impact of this pandemic. And, And who are those who are hardest hit? It's the poor. Jesus is saying that justice is a non-negotiable part of the gospel, that, that we must always stand up for and care for every human being, regardless of who they are. And you can see that especially at the very end of the passage. What's the big question Jesus finishes the story with? He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's flipping the question. The lawyer was asking, who is my neighbor? Jesus is saying, wrong question. The real question is, to whom will you be a neighbor? That is a radically different question, and it's a radically higher standard, and it leads to our last point. We've seen the call to justice. We've seen the nature of justice. Lastly, we need to take a look at the real power for justice. Because here's what I think really is probably the most brilliant part of the whole story. Um, If Jesus had made a Samaritan the one who was beaten and lying in the road and a Jewish person the one who came along and helped them, then it would have been uh, easy and natural for any Jewish person listening to this story to identify um, with the hero in the story, to identify with the noble hero and say, oh yeah, I'm supposed to play the role of the hero in this story. 
Now, remember what I said. Jesus doesn't identify the person who was attacked. But every commentator I read when I was studying this week said the same thing, that it would have been natural for Jesus' Jewish audience to just simply assume that the person who was attacked was a Jewish person. That means that Jesus is encouraging his audience, and by extension, he's encouraging you and me to identify with the person who was beaten and left for dead in the road, not to identify with the hero of the story. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, imagine that you were beaten and left for dead in the middle of the road. And imagine that your only hope for salvation was at the hands of a hated enemy, who had every reason to pass you by, but instead showed you grace by, um, by pouring out sacrificial, costly love on you in order to save you. Wouldn't you want that person to be a neighbor to you? Of course you would. If something like that happened to you, that would change you, wouldn't it? If something like that happened to you, that would get inside your heart and start moving things around so that the next time you saw someone who was in need, you would never be able to forget what that Samaritan did for you. You would become someone who was able to show sacrificial love because you had been the recipient of sacrificial love. That's what one of the most amazing things that Jesus is showing here. Because what was the motivating power of the Samaritan in this story? What prompted him to do what he did? Was the Samaritan thinking, okay, now if I'm a good person, if I live a just and noble life, then God will love me and accept me? No. You see his motivation in verse 33. It says that this Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where uh, the wounded man was, and when he saw him, it says he had compassion. He had compassion. In other words, the Samaritan was not um, doing what he did as a way of earning God's love. He was doing what he did as a way of expressing God's love. What? How? You know, if you read through the historical accounts of Jesus's life, one of the things you'll see is that uh, it's constantly talking about the emotional life of Jesus. You know, Jesus felt a lot of emotions, but by far, the most common emotion you see Jesus expressing in the Gospels is compassion. In fact, we could say that compassion was Jesus' calling card. What is compassion? In the Bible, the word actually means um, a deep, overwhelming emotion, and it's deep in your innards. It's, it's something that's deep down in your gut. In fact, the way I like to translate the word compassion in the Bible is gut love. Compassion means gut love. So whenever Jesus saw someone in need, gut love. Whenever Jesus saw someone hurting or wounded or mistreated or oppressed, gut love. Friends, listen, if we're the ones who are supposed to identify with the man who was beaten and left for dead in the road, then who do you think the heroic Samaritan is? Who is the one who was hated and rejected by all? Who is the one who, whenever he sees the poor and the weak and the oppressed and the vulnerable, he instinctively feels gut love? And who is the one that, when everybody else turned aside, he was the one who stopped and actually poured out all of his resources in costly love in order to rescue you and me? Friends, it's Jesus. Jesus isn't just a good neighbor. Jesus is the ultimate neighbor. And the ultimate place he shows us neighbor love is on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus did not just risk his life. He gave his life. 
Jesus became the man beaten on the road. Jesus was stripped when they hung him on the cross. Jesus took a spear in the gut because he loved us from the gut. And on the cross, Jesus took the oil of his love and, and, and the wine of his blood in, in order to pour it all into our wounds in order to heal us from all of the ways that we fail to love God and love our neighbors. Friends, the whole point of this story is that, that we could never love God and never love our neighbor perfectly in the way that God has called us to do so. That we could never earn our way into God's love and that the only way God's love could ever come into our life is through the costly love, the, the compassionate gut love of Jesus. That the more that love, the more the gut love of Jesus comes into your life, the more it makes you a vessel of the same kind of compassionate, sacrificial gut love to others. In fact, we could summarize the whole message of this parable like this. Living a life of justice is not a condition for getting you into the love of God. It's a sign that the love of God has already gotten into you. Living a life of justice is not a condition for getting you into the love of God. It's a sign the love of God has already gotten into you. Friends, the more you see Jesus loving you like this, the more his gut love comes into your life, the more it makes you a vessel of the same kind of gut love to others. And to every human being, everybody is your neighbor. Remember, the question is not, who is my neighbor? The real question is, to whom will you be a neighbor? Living a life of justice is not a condition for getting into the love of God. It's a sign the love of God has gotten into you. The more the love, the gut love of Jesus gets into you, the more it transforms you into somebody who's able to sacrificially love your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the true neighbor, the true Samaritan, who at enormous cost to his own life, infinite cost to his own life and resources and well-being, died on the cross in order to rescue us from all the ways we fail to love you and love our neighbor. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts ever wider to receive more and more of the gut love of Jesus and that as we do so, you would transform us more and more into people who take justice seriously, people who, who understand that 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 there's never a separation in Jesus' mind between the theological and the practical, between our relationship with God and our relationship with other people, that those two things always go together. They're always um, intricately connected to one another, and that the only way we can possibly love our neighbors fully is if we've experienced the love of God most fully in our life through the love of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be uh, ever fuller recipients of that love and ever greater vessels of that love to others. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.